Late last month, I took my first drive to 312 North Meldrum Street, a tidy century-old bungalow on the western edge of Old Town Fort Collins. And I was pleasantly surprised to see how little it had changed over the years. The black and white photo in my hand, taken in front of the house in 1935, showed that its roofline was the same, and even its decorative wood shingles looked identical 86 years later. In the photo, a group of black women gather around each other, smiling, 312 North Meldrum Street peeking out from the background. I don't know what they were doing that day, whether they'd gathered for a special occasion or maybe a neighborhood get-together after church, but I was happy to see that the house was the same a rare remnant of one of Fort Collins's early black neighborhoods. Despite a fight to put down roots in the ultra-white frontier town of Fort Collins, many of the community's early black residents didn't stay here for too long. And even among some local historians, Fort Collins's black history has been distilled down to a few popular anecdotes. Let's change that today, shall we? I'm Erin Udell with the Fort Collins Coloradoan, and you're listening to the 30th episode of The Way It Was, a history podcast podcast. The Invisible History of Black Fort Collins. In the early 1990s, uh, shortly after Sharon and I uh, got married, you know, I was a a nerd at that time and put together a video photo slideshow for Sharon's dad. And it was mostly photos involving him and Joyce, um, you know, like some of their wedding era photos and and his army photos and things like that and um for us it was just uh sharon and i it was just kind of a cool fun project at that time putting uh, photos on video was really cool that's david north speaking with me from his family's home outside of seattle earlier this month his wife sharon son madison and sister-in-law brenda are also on the line And what you're hearing is a story about Sharon and Brenda's grandmother, Maddie Lyle. Um, Sharon's dad really loved that video. Um, And, um, and Maddie did too. I think, um, I think it was probably because of that video that Maddie invited Sharon and I over to her house in Seattle one night. She dug an old hat box out of the closet full of old photos and she started going through them and I I think it was it was about an hour and a half or two hours that we went through these photos with Maddie and she would pull one out and she'd try to remember who was in it and sometimes she could remember and sometimes she couldn't and over and over and over again she must have said it 50 times that night always label your pictures always mark your pictures And what we came away with that night wasn't information about what was in the photos. We went home, we went home permanently branded, always label our photos, which of course we don't do. Um, 
Um, but, you know, she was, you know, around, you know, 90 years old, give or take, and um, had forgotten a lot of things that um, she never thought she would forget. It wasn't too long after that, um, she invited Sharon to go back one day, and they went back through a lot of the photos, and she had Sharon label some of the photos that she could remember the names for. And the reason all of that's important is that it was clear that Maddie wanted that history to be remembered. You know, it wasn't just a hat box of photos to be discarded. Maddie passed away a few years after showing David and Sharon this hat box of photos. She left it to them, and as boxes of old photos tend to do, it ended up on a shelf in the couple's garage. It sat there for years pulled down and sifted through only on rare occasions. About a decade ago, David got an Ancestry.com account and threw himself into researching Sharon's family history. You see, Maddie's great-grandmother, Sharon's great-great-grandmother, Martha Hubbard, was born into slavery in Kentucky, and she had this incredible, harrowing story of her escape to freedom in Kansas around the Civil War. So Maddie's life story, and her photos, kind of took a back seat. After some wheedling from a distant relative on Ancestry, David finally scanned and uploaded a few images from Maddie's collection to the site several years ago. Then, in 2020, completely out of the blue, David got a message on Ancestry. It was from a historic preservation planner in, of all places, Fort Collins, Colorado. If you could say your first and last name and maybe your job title with the city, let's, let's start with that. Sure. I'm Marin Bizdek. I'm the Senior Historic Preservation Planner for the City of Fort Collins. Last spring, Marin and fellow Historic Preservation Planner Jim Bertolini started chipping away at a large research project about the early history of Fort Collins's Black community. It was kind of a way of righting past wrongs, Marin explained. The modern historic preservation movement that we know today started back in the 1960s, when people began to realize that rampant redevelopment in the U.S. was coming at the cost of its historic buildings, its past. So in 1966, the National Historic Preservation Act was passed, and historic preservation efforts across the country were formalized. But again, this was in the 1960s, and unsurprisingly, minority stories, black stories, were largely ignored. We knew we had some basic information that's part of just the commonly understood narrative of Fort Collins, that if you ask any local historian, they'll tell you about Charlie Clay and how he worked as the first city scavenger and was, you know, the first black employee of the city of Fort Collins and that he came, you know, to Fort Collins with the original um, uh, unit, military unit that created Camp Collins. And of course, that's a fascinating and important part of the history, but, you know, between Charlie Clay and there's another gentleman named Charlie Birdwhistle, who um, we have a great photo of him at the museum, um, that so people are aware of him, just if they go to, to FC Mod, and, you know, there's kind of like, oh, well, this person existed, and we know he worked at the Northern Hotel, we know he was a janitor at the Y, and but, you know, that's kind of where the story stopped. It was almost as if we had a couple of examples. We knew that the community was never large, and nobody had really sat down and just kind of 
crunch the numbers from the census data. So that was one of the first things we did. We know Fort Collins's first permanent black settler was Charlie Clay, who Marin just mentioned. He was born into slavery in Missouri and ended up being freed in the mid-1800s. He came to Fort Collins, back when it was a military outpost called Camp Collins. Over his years in Fort Collins, he would work as a cook, a barber, and hauling trash and ash on a horse-drawn cart as the city's first scavenger. Clay married his wife, Anna, and they had six children. The family was well-known in Fort Collins for decades. Though we know from historical newspaper accounts that Clay came to the area in 1865, the first census he appears in is in 1880. By then, there were 13 recorded black residents, and in the 1900 census 10 years later, there were about 15. I should note, though, that the census does not provide an accurate picture of how many black residents Fort Collins really had. It was common back then for people of color to be left out, whether inadvertently or on purpose, in census counts. By 1910, a year after Charlie Clay died, there were two dozen black or mixed-race Fort Collins residents counted in the federal census. That would mark the community's peak before World War II, just 24 people. While census records gave Marin and Jim names, ages, birthplaces, and general household info, they soon turned to the digitized pages of old Fort Collins newspapers and the Denver Star, a historic black newspaper that covered life along the Front Range in the early 20th century. You know, in Fort Collins, you could be well-educated, as Maddie Lyle was, as her husband William was, and not be able to work at the full height of your training and profession as a result of racial discrimination. So our most prominent um, middle-class African-Americans show up in the census as janitors and porters. But, you know, in reality, these are people who, some of whom had some college education, who in a, in a different environment would have had, you know, more middle, what we think of in the white community as, um, you know, access to middle-class jobs. And so if you read the society columns, you see these people were um, all of the trappings of the middle class that, you know, were really important, um, what, what they, who went to whose wedding and, you know, um, what kind of social influence they had and what kind of clothing they were wearing and what kind of homes they were buying and whether they were buying cars. All of those things are captured um, outside of that skeletal information we had just from the basic data. One of Marin's most exciting finds ended up tucked onto the second page of a 1939 issue of the Fort Collins Express Courier. It was about a local black woman, Mrs. Maddie Lyle, and how she successfully sued the owner of the State Theater on North College for discrimination. Apparently, she was not allowed to sit in a particular part of the theater, so she sued, and she won. She won $50 in damages back in 1939. According to a Coloradoan article in 1945, by then the Express Courier had become the Coloradoan. Maddie's case was the first discrimination lawsuit in the history of Fort Collins. Want to know something interesting, though? Her grandchildren had never heard about it. More on that after this quick break. So, if you were a regular listener of The Way It Was in 2020, you probably know that an ad for Jack's Outdoor Gear Farm and Ranch typically goes here. But, since that was a year-long sponsorship, it expired at the end of 2020. 
and you're just getting me today. Since the way it was is no longer sponsored, episodes will be more sporadic in 2021. But you'll still hear from me from time to time as interesting stories from Fort Collins's history, like this one, find and utterly consume me. So that's it. No ad, just a little break to hear my voice set against some light acoustic guitar. And of course, I have to make a humble plea for you to support the Coloradoan. If you appreciate this podcast or any of the other work my colleagues or I do, buy a digital subscription at coloradoan.com today. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. All right, we're back. But let's go all the way back to 2020, when Marin and Jim were researching the historically Black neighborhoods of early Fort Collins, which typically includes, but isn't limited to, Meldrum, Maple, and Cherry Streets. As we started to try to piece together who lived in that neighborhood based on the names that showed up in the census, as I reached out through Ancestry.com to um, uh, somebody who had posted information in his family tree about Maddie Lyle. Um, And the reason why I was interested in Maddie Lyle, who lived at 310 North Meldrum and also 312 North Meldrum, is because we found an article in the newspaper in 1939 um, saying that she uh, had sued the State Theater on North College for discrimination. And I had reached out to the county courthouse to a um, records person there saying, you know, what happened with this? What was the disposition of that lawsuit? And kind of expected, honestly, that they wouldn't be able to find anything. But, you know, this was all, you know, again, we're all in pandemic mode and I don't know, I think, you know, the person that I reached out to was really dug hard, um, and he found the records, and so he sent me um, these, you know, spidery, handwritten uh, records of the disposition of the case that showed that she was awarded damages, and and then that was kind of it. That's all we had, um, and so I thought, I really, you know, what motivated this person in 1939 when there were rampant instances of uh, discrimination around the community. The white traits only signs were up in businesses all over Old Town. And, you know, what made her in that moment decide she was going to fight back and, and sue the theater? And so I was so curious about it. And so that's why I went to Ancestry. And I found, uh, you know, like I said, her granddaughter's um, husband was, you know, kind of the family genealogist. And he had posted photos of Maddie Lyle and her husband and her daughter, Joyce. And so I just reached out to him and explained who I was and said, I'd like to make contact with you. And he immediately replied. And ever since then, there's just been a flood of information because amazingly, Maddie Lyle was a photographer. So she became our um, unexpected source into photos of the black community in that era, um, in that neighborhood. Um, that we, you know, it was a tr- just a treasure trove that that she kept those photos, took those photos, kept those photos, passed them on to her descendants, and they're, you know, the kind of candid photos that, you know, you can only really get from a private collection. One of the exciting things about being contacted by Marin was that it kind of forced me to look at um, the Fort Collins photos 
That's David again. And the voice you're going to hear after his is Sharon's. Which initially, when we first started digging into all of this, didn't seem as interesting because they're not as old as the Highland photos. And they're not as close to slavery and, and some of the, the really difficult to piece together history. And when Marin contacted me, it forced me to, to look at more detail in some of what we had from Fort Collins. And we actually didn't know about the lawsuit that Maddie was involved in. So that was new information to us from Marin. Sharon, you mentioned that you um, know more about your grandparents' life in Seattle. Do you have any memories of any stories from Colorado? No, I don't. A year or two before my grandma died, we went through a lot of the pictures, but she was more intent on, um, on giving us names. She didn't tell a lot of stories of, of relationships of people. One neat thing that I didn't know about until I started looking into this was um, Maddie's discrimination case. Mm -hmm. in 39. Had you heard about that before? Nope. <clears throat> no, had not heard about that, but was not surprised. I mean, that's kind of, to me, my grandma was um, feisty and stubborn. She was very sweet, but she was very feisty and stubborn. You just didn't mess with, with her. Um, she was a, a very religious person. She loved her church. Um, she was a social person. She liked to, you know, do things. They had a, um, now what did they play? They played a card, bridge, I think it was. Bridge, and um, she used to play Parcheesi. Um, like I said, she and taught Pukino. us. Pukino, that was it, Pukino. That, that was it, yeah. That was, I don't even remember how to play that game. That was Sharon's sister, Brenda, who just popped in, by the way. During our call, the two reminisced about going over to their grandparents' house all the time in Seattle. They would cook or pull taffy with Maddie and sit with their grandpa as he smoked his pipe and watched TV. Maddie and William's only child, Joyce Lyle, married Samuel E. Kelly and had Sharon, Brenda, and Bill. The kids were used to hearing about Samuel's activism. He was a founding vice president of the University of Washington's Minority Affairs Department, and he was its first black senior administrator. We, we were very familiar with his activism and... Um diversity and um, education. And, you know, we grew up with that. But to hear all of this about my grandmother, uh, Maddie, is is kind of liberating because she, she just never said anything, you know? We never heard this story. So to, to hear, I always loved her, it just makes me even love her even more because she, um, she stood up for herself, her family, and, and others like her who um, could be taken advantage of. Or, um, and that's, that's really interesting to me. It makes me um, um, look at her in a different way. The things that Maddie did and some of the other uh, family members in, uh, in their history, they didn't go out of their way. They, they weren't looking to be famous and they weren't looking to make big splashes. They were doing the things that, that were right and that um, fighting for the things that they were entitled to. They were just fighting to have a good life like anybody else would. Like Marin briefly mentioned earlier, Maddie and William Lyle both had college educations. According to David, they met as students at what was then the Kansas State Normal School in Emporia, Kansas. Despite that, 
when the two moved to Fort Collins, William would end up working as a janitor, and Maddie occasionally did part-time cleaning work as well. Over time, they were able to save enough to buy property in Fort Collins, including their little bungalow at 312 North Meldrum Street, that house that I mentioned in the beginning of this episode. It was Maddie who took that picture, the one that I mentioned of the women gathered around each other, smiling. Maddie and William had seemed to carve out a nice life in Fort Collins, but ultimately left around 1944. Here's Marin again on why some residents, like the Lyles, didn't stay in the city. One of the main possibilities was its lack of a physical church for Fort Collins's Black congregation in the early 20th century. We know that the Black church as an institution is, is important in every community across the United States. It's a central place for social and political um, interaction and action, and uh, so important in people's personal lives. And so when you see people coming to Fort Collins and in the early 20th century and trying to build community together, having a place to worship together in an African Methodist Episcopal church, the AME church, uh, as it's commonly referred to, or a Zion Baptist church, these are black congregations that were trying to form. And the people who were coming here had a missionary uh, aspect to their work here. They were reaching out in community, trying to get the funding going to identify sites where they could um, turn a building into a church or build a church. And you can imagine how Herculean that effort is when the community numbers are really small. And so we don't know exactly why that failed here. We have evidence in the record that people tried to start a church in several ways, that they did successfully have worship congregations going in private Charlie Clay's residence. So there was a community there. They were trying to find a site on Cherry Street at one point. Charlie Birdwhistle was involved in that in the 20s. But ultimately, for whatever reason, that momentum for the church and the community combined petered out. At the same time, Marin said Denver's Five Points neighborhood was on the rise as a burgeoning black community, and Deerfield, a black agricultural community west of Greeley had already formed potentially drawing Fort Collins residents to these diverse areas with more opportunity. Why they stayed in Fort Collins or didn't is different for each person, but ultimately what we do know is there's never been or wasn't in that era, you know, a strong sense of momentum that ultimately, you know, grew and and thrived. And so, you know, we've had people tell us today, um, I heard anecdotally, you know, by talking to some of our contacts at CSU, that people who were going on the tour. This tour Martin just mentioned is a virtual tour the city and some of its partner organizations put together earlier this year. It's a map and takes people on a self-guided tour of buildings that were central to Black history in Fort Collins. People who were going on the tour um, for Martin Luther King Day uh, were just People who've lived in Fort Collins, you know, I'm talking about black citizens who've lived here for decades, had no idea that there was as rich of a history as, as we currently have, because it's just, it's been invisible to, even to them. Um, and, and it's all, it's all part and parcel of, you know, kind of that faltering effort, and then people moved on. I mean, the Lyles, for example, moved on in the mid-40s because the war was happening, and you know, presumably, you know, the job opportunities in Seattle and, you know, family connections drew them away from Fort Collins. So that's, you know, yet another kind of singular example of why someone would leave. 
Despite never gaining the momentum necessary to really grow Fort Collins's black community in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Marin said there's a new and different momentum going on right now. People are talking about black history in Fort Collins. When the city unveiled Marin and Jim's early research on a web page earlier this year, people noticed, including myself. They started downloading the map of little-known Black Fort Collins landmarks, and residents reached out to the city's historic preservation office with questions for Marin and suggestions for what threads of local Black history to tug on next. And David, by the way, doesn't sound like he'll be stopping his research into Sharon's family history anytime soon. He's hooked. I know the feeling. As my interview with David, Sharon, Brenda, and Madison wrapped up early last month, David had one last message he wanted to share. A plea for all of you people with boxes of old photographs in your garage or attic. It's really important to convey the importance of people digging out those old photos and, and newspaper clippings and, you know, trivial bits and pieces of driver, you know, old driver's licenses, whatever they've got. Um, because those are all pieces of a story that is gradually being lost as people pass away. Anything that helps um, trigger people to make contact and dig up those old things and look at the pictures one more time, all that stuff helps all, all of us piece our stories back together. That does it for this episode of The Way It Was. Thanks so much to everyone who participated in this one, especially Sharon, Brenda, David, and Madison, who shared Lyle family stories and, of course, Maddie's photos. If you want to see some of those photos, head to coloradoan.com. You can also find a larger story I wrote about Black history in Fort Collins there. And for more Black history information, be sure to check out Marin and Jim's research on the city's Black Fort Collins resource page at fcgov.com. Until next time, history nerds.